and then a sort of a drum room slash laundry room where uh, I jokingly call it the live room only because it's not really acoustically treated, but you know it works for most things, especially yeah. But if you put enough dirty laundry in there, yeah, you can you can change the acoustics a lot, you know, just based on the amount of dirty laundry. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hey, everybody, it's Lid Shaw, your host of Recording Studio Rockstars, the podcast bringing you inside the recording studio. I created this show to introduce you to real world recording professionals, to hear their stories and learn from their experiences so that you can take your records to the next level and become a rock star of the recording studio yourself. My guest on the show today is the fabulous Greg Norman. He is a freelance recording engineer, producer, and audio designer and technician from Chicago, Illinois. Greg records both from his home studio and at Electrical Audio, a multi-room facility belonging to Steve Albini in Chicago that specializes in recording to analog tape as well as digital. Greg's discography is like a list of who's who in cool bands, including... Andrew Bird, The Killers, Guided by Voices, The Autumn Defense, and Kim Deal of The Pixies. Greg has also created Normaphone, which is his moniker for all audio electronic constructions that he does independent of electrical audio, where he has been steadily running the tech shop for many, many years. One of Greg's notable products is the beautiful MX Pre L1C mic preamp that he designed for use in the Sony MXP3000 series console. And despite all that list of talents, as Larry Crane of Tape Op Magazine has said, Greg is simply a nice guy. Please welcome Greg Norman to Recording Studio Rockstars. Greg, are you ready to rock, my friend? I think I may be. <laughs> well, welcome, dude. I hope I didn't overwhelm you with that intro there. No, that's fine. I got I got one correction. Oh, please the, do. Uh, uh, I recorded the the Killers, which is spelled like Killers, and it was a hardcore band in the late nineties ah. <clears throat> before the Killers became even famous. Okay. So it's like it's a it's been a funny thing that like uh, when a band will record with me and then they'll put the record out and then they'll say and then like their label will be like recorded with Greg Norman, recorded with Russian Circles and Rosis, this this and the Killers, and then it's sort of a funny thing. Uh, it's all in the pronunciation, man. Potato, patata. Exactly. That's all it is, man. Exactly. I mean, nobody the says guy, patata. Nobody says that. None, I don't really say that, but um. Funny thing about the Kylers is the drummer was a fantasy artist and he drew a ton of uh, magic cards. Like he was famous for doing that. He would be mm -hmm. flown to like Central America and South America for like these giant conventions where he'd sign these magic cards for money. But anyways, that's 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 as famous as that band I think got. Well, but, uh, magic is in like you know like um, the gathering dealing cards. Oh, Magic the Gathering cards, right? Yeah, oh, man. that kind of stuff. That's a whole Remember other that? topic. Well, that actually came into my life because my first podcast was um, all about Bitcoin. And, uh, ah. and Bitcoin, <laughs> the, the biggest trading site for Bitcoin is a place called Mt. Gox, which crashed uh -huh. and burned and made the news all over the world. And um, Mt. Gox actually stands for Magic the Gathering Exchange. So that's what it was. It's Magic the Gathering Exchange. So it sounds a little bit like you're cutting hair in the background, man. I love it. So, you know, you're moonlighting as a hairdresser and taking this interview at the same time. That's, that's cool. Yeah, I got a baby on the way. I got to make extra money. That's right, man. Awesome. 
practicing on my mannequins. Greg, tell us a little bit about yourself, man. I did an intro to you. Um, Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and and, uh, where you came from. How'd you get here? Um, Basically, uh, I started doing audio stuff in high school with friends. You know, like uh, there's also like a club in the high school where you sort of just did sound for the jazz concerts or the jazz band, and they had a little ADAT recorder, and they would record whatever happened at the school. And I was just kind of curious about that sort of stuff. The AV department, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. The nerdy AV department. Yeah. Uh, but the guy who ran it was really nice. He let me borrow some microphones and a snake and I would go record like garage and basement punk shows, like of my, you know, suburban teenage friends bands and record it all on like tape cassette and sort of just learn how to do stuff really guerrilla style yeah. back then. And then, you know, you know, being in, just bands with friends, like recording ourselves. I would use like a old Tascam TAC mixer from the seventies that I got from guitar center for like 250 bucks. That was like a giant heavy old mixer. And I got to know how to use a real console. Cause it was sort of like a halfway point between a, you know, really, really amateur and then sort of a pro console. It was a uh, kind of cool. And then later on, after working in a moving company for a little while, I got like a quarter inch eight track, Fostex machine and started, you know, kept on recording friends bands. Yeah. And, uh, you know, kept on going. I moved out to Montana to learn about history, just to go to go to the Rockies and be out of Chicagoland and go to school. Like Frank Zappa, you went out there to uh, raise dental floss? Exactly. (laughs) Raise and clean, use dental floss. Right. (laughs) And then uh, I called Steve Albini. I got his number through a, a mutual friend and called him out of the blue and asked him if he had internship programs or whatever for his studio, his home studio at the time. And he just invited me to come down and uh, to intern. I was, and then at that point, I transferred to Columbia College in Chicago and sort of finished up. That hey, way. hang tight just for one sec there. So for people who are listening who may not know Steve yet, tell us who Steve Albini was to you at that time when you called him up and asked him if he needed any interns? Well, I had uh, good friends that were big fans of his and like Big Black and Rape Man. And then at that time, there was Shellac had just sort of started out and they had like a super secret bootleg tape that Shellac didn't do, but like people would record a show at like Lounge Jacks or some other bar and then pass around these cassette tapes. And a, a good friend of mine had one of those cassette tapes and played me like the two songs that were on the cassette. It was like one of those kind of 16 minute long cassettes that just had two songs on it like it was really like these nerdy guys that like made a very special bootleg for this you know new steve albini band and i knew that he was like the guy who recorded the pixies and pj harvey and a bunch of other bands and you know i liked the way he recorded everything and so you just called him up out of the blue i mean how did that feel as a you know as a kid calling up somebody as one of your mentors or mentor, I don't know if that's the right word then, but somebody who you really looked up to, you know, as a fan. I was a fan of the stuff he worked with. And then like, I'd sort of like would hear of all, all the lore about, you know, around him about like, you know, how he would like sort of treat bands and the type of aesthetic he went for. And so, yeah, I had that all in my mind and I got the number and I was excited, but also like kind of, you know, I had no idea whether or not it was even sort of a possibility. And I called up just to see if it was a possibility. And he answered the phone and he sort of talked to me directly about it and was just like, yeah, if you you know want to do it and you're going to school for it, you know, like, you know, just let us know when, when you're available and stop by. And I told him I was going to be in town for like spring break and I would, you know, I stopped by for a visit. So yeah, his old studio was in a, a bungalow house, uh, like a normal looking house in Chicago. And House of Albini, that's what I heard it called. Yeah, it had like a few different names like Kitty Empire and 
very early on it also had electrical audio whenever they needed to have some official sounding name but um a friend of mine drove me over there like in april of 96 and i went there to just meet people and I uh, knocked on the door and he answered the door in his underwear and he was totally naked except for his underwear. I obviously woke him up and uh, he's like, yeah, come on in. And like he runs off and goes to the bathroom and I'm just sort of like hanging out in the living room in like this r- weird, strange house. And um, Well, cool, man. Groovy. So I love that story and I love the fact that you had, were bold enough to call up somebody that you were a fan of and just ask if you could join it, you know, be in the studio, work with Steve. I actually called Steve once out of the blue like that too and was amazed that he answered the phone. He was the nicest guy, super friendly. And um, we we called him, we were working on a record and we wanted to know how he got that PJ Harvey vocal sound. And he just told us, like he was, he had no reservations about just saying, oh yeah, we just put a mic, we put it through an amp, mic'd it up. Yeah. It was cool. Yeah, it doesn't like hold secrets from people like, you know, like this is my secret potion that like, makes me a millionaire producer guy and like you can't have it kind of thing is is all, yeah. all about sort of sharing whatever he needs and whatever anyone wants to know about what he does so yeah totally i mean i've only got like one killer secret and i'm not going to tell you what it is <laughs> that's that's the mystery <laughs> you know now i have to like find out you know somehow yeah right well so um i don't know if you have this one ready but i want to ask you if you've got like a inspirational quote for us something that you really like the sound of that might help people? Uh, yeah, I mean, like, just sort of not necessarily like a quote, but basically uh, an idea. But like, what I get out of this is just, you know, it's great to just share in someone else's best moment for me, just being a part of people making something they think is great. And, you know, and hopefully I think is great. That's what I would say. So you had to, you were weighing the options there. It was either, be a record producer, engineer, or be, a, you know, deliver babies into the world. Or <laughs> right. Maybe marry people, become a priest and marry couples or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it, I guess be a part of their best sort of creation, like their artistic sort of, in this sense, in our world, it's, it's them creating something that no one's asking them to do. And that's kind of fun. Like if someone has a baby, that's great and everything, but it's not like, you know, unexpected. It's like, sometimes <laughs> nobody asks you to do that. Either. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it just happens. You're like, Oh, great. That's oh, great. Wonderful. <laughs> awesome. Do you want to see a movie later? Yeah, but it's cool. Cause then your babies grow up and they, they make better records than you do anyway. So it's, it's yeah. all good. You hope to give them this weird, weird, uh, childhood full of characters. Yeah. Do you have any kids? I do. I have one 16 month old boy and I have another one on the way. Wow. Congratulations, man. Yeah. Thank you. It's pretty, it's pretty insane and great. Uh, and, you know, I'm 39 and I'm doing it sort of later on than normal. Uh, but I know exactly what that's like. Hopefully that'll be, uh, hopefully that'll be get its own energy. <laughs> no, I'll be yeah. like healthy enough to watch everything happen with these people. These people. Um, tell us some, uh, some discoveries that you've made about having, you know, such a young child around music in the studio. Got any good stories about that? Uh, not, not really. Like, uh, since I have to be at one place or another, like, you know, he just sort of hangs out away from the studio, basically. Like, you know, for me, the experience is like, okay, now I have a reason to sort of want to be home at a reasonable time. And, and like, you know, I'll go home for like dinner and lunch now, whereas before I couldn't do that because we lived so far away from electrical, I couldn't really run home to sort of visit with people during the middle of the day. Recently, we moved closer to electrical where, you know, it's a five-minute drive or 15-minute bike ride back to the place, and I can hang out and have meals with them and visit through the day. So, like, it, it's 
changed in a cool way like that. It's like forced me to sort of live outside of the studio world, which is always good. Yeah, that was always a big game changer for me too. Family life was something that helped me finally define my boundaries and my goals for when I wanted to be working in the studio. Uh-huh. That's great. I like your setup. I, I definitely, it's a, uh, I, I used to live in a house, the same house where my home studio was. And like I said, moved recently and the studio stayed at the old house until I could finish off the new place. And I'm definitely looking forward to the, the day where I get to sort of just say goodbye to the family, then walk downstairs and see the band <laughs> and, yeah. and then hop back upstairs if I want to, you know, just say hi again. It's nice. It's good to have some separation, but it's nice if it's not too hard to get back home again, you know? That's a big deal. So, hey, tell us a little bit about your studio. Let's let's geek out for a sec. Tell us what you do when you record in your home studio. What do you use? Like, what? How would you describe it? Uh, it's it's kind of a cool little place. It's a, a basement. I would say about like a nine hundred or a thousand square feet total. Uh, the uh, there's a two different playing rooms, an acoustically dead room where I usually shove amplifiers. I can fit like three loud guitar amps in there with good isolation. Mm-hmm. And then a sort of a drum room slash laundry room where uh, I jokingly call it the live room only because it's not really acoustically treated, but you know, it works for most things, especially. Yeah. But if you put enough dirty laundry in there. Yeah. You can, you can change the acoustics a lot, you know, just based on the amount of dirty laundry. Have you thrown a microphone in the dryer and then just fired it up to see what happens? I've, I've thrown it in there. It's hard to do it with the cable on. I need a wireless cable if I want to like, you know, have it on. But um, I've had I've had mics in there. It's one of those things where you try it and it's like, oh, yeah, that's that's kind of what I expected. And it sounds like shit. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, uh, that and then uh, the rest of the basement is the control room and I've got way too much giant gear for like a tiny home studio, I think. Like I, I kind of splurged. I went on a weird vision quest for tape machines you know when i first sort of started out i bought all these broken tape machines and decided i would like fix them up and either use them or sell them but they ended up just piling up in the living room like seven of them all in pieces and you know it's like the typical story of like the the gearhead with the five or six cars in the backyard and all of them in disrepair and or just yeah you know totally. broken in pieces and well it's like you know the producer engineer is the one who never really finishes his own record you know yeah exactly <laughs> I, I, i've got a thousand little demo clips of things and they're all just sitting in hard drives and reels of tape everywhere <laughs> but, yeah. But yeah i'm sure you fixed other people's tape machines up beautifully in the past right it's easier to yeah work on other people's stuff than fix your own for sure. <laughs> well, hey, let me ask you another little uh, feel-good question. So um, share with us something in your life, your, your recording journey that was uh, an important failure for you, something that was a setback that maybe turned out okay in the end, you know? Yeah. Um, well, there's like all sorts of little mistakes that you make. Like, you know, when I first started out, I you know, was tracking a band and I would leave the tape machine ready to record when someone wanted to punch in i you know dropped in and raced over a second of all the band and then they're done that (laughs) yeah those like sort of things where you do that or drop a microphone that's like four thousand dollars and cause damage like there's all your life will just get littered with that sort of stuff but um yeah i was thinking about it and i was i was thinking like being at electrical from the start was kind of like a blessing and a curse like there's certain things that like you get by and I feel like I got this through also working from my house because I would record bands I couldn't afford to record at electrical at my house. And uh, I would learn how to work with a lot of limitations and with a lot of like 
less than awesome gear. And then when I add electrical, you're surrounded by all these fantastic microphones, great instruments and great rooms. And it's easy to make an album uh, kind of along the lines of what that inertia is pushing you towards. Like, especially if you're a house engineer at electrical audio, uh, most people just think of the studio as like Steve Albini's studio. And if I'm not personally you know, connected to the band and it's like a, a band that's just calling up to come into electrical audio to record, they kind of want to record that Steve Albini style record. Yeah, totally. Unless they told totally. me otherwise. And I could probably describe a few details of that just having spent time there myself, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so you end up like, you know, doing a setup that they would like with the drum room mics and, you know, certain aspects of certain things and... And you end up making a record that they want to make, and that's great. Uh, but you end up sort of like uh, doing that sort of that thing for that band or that thing for mm -hmm. a lot of different bands. And I felt like uh, for a little while there, I got in this weird rut of like uh, doing that as a, like a weird habit just by, you know, that's what everybody kind of liked and wanted to try. And, and I sort of had to reignite a creative sort of fire as far as making something new and interesting and working kind of outside of that. Yeah, I corner. totally understand that. I mean, even myself, I get into a system that really works uh -huh. and it's, it's smart to stick with a system that works. There's reasons why you stick with it because it works. <laughs> right. But then eventually you're right. You get to a point where you're like, I just feel like I'm doing the same thing or this record sounds like that the last record, you know? And yeah. so, and I, I would say anybody listening to this with a home studio, for example, or, or any studio, knows exactly what that's like, or they've already experienced that. So how did you get out of that? Well, uh, with some help, like I tried to open myself up to different types of music and different types of bands that, that aren't trying to make the same Jesus Lizard shellac record, you know, or the same type of record that like they associate with Steve or the studio. And uh, so I've done a lot of like weird free improv type jazz and like a lot of like noisy stuff. And like there's a band called Locrian that's kind of a noisier crazy band and uh they sound really cool and it's you can kind of start playing around with like different things to make new new things happen and new, i do a lot more sort of like production-y type stuff like the sonic soundscape kind of production type yeah. things that like i can get away with doing that with some bands other bands you know it's more of a straight-up documentarian kind of recording but like we have enough trust between me and that band and me and some other bands to be able to just do a bunch of crazy shit and see what happens, you know? Yeah, well, Chicago is very welcoming to that sort of thing, too. I remember seeing some bands up there that just sort of blew my mind, mm -hmm. you know, that how they would just push the boundaries of what I was used to. Yeah, it's it's nice. There's a lot of bands and a lot of people trying to, like, make their own voice and make their own way through a mud of... <laughs> I mean, it's probably similar to down there in, 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 a, in a weird way, sure. you know, but... You know, they're both both uh, cities with giant amounts of musicians trying to do a lot of the same sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, down here, you've got a lot of country music. You've got a lot of Americana. You've got a lot of, you know, CCM or Christian music, things like that. Uh -huh. Shiny pop. Right. A lot of shiny pop in Nashville. <laughs> All right, so I think that somebody who's listening to this, they're going to be glad to hear that. And they're probably ready for you to start telling us some details. All right. So, so I want you, I want to ask you, I just sort of jump off the track here for a second and hit you up with some questions. Like in these experimental records, let's just start talking about some of the weird stuff that you do and, and maybe how you came up with those ideas. Even when you were here in Nashville, um, when you were here, I remember you saw a jam box on the wall and you were like, oh, let's get that hooked up. Oh yeah. You know, talk about that kind of stuff. What is, what's some unusual tools that people don't even know that they've got? Well, especially with the cheap stuff, 
I've just, uh, you know, you can always find some, like I always say, like a, you can make use out of pretty much anything that produces sound. And I have a lot of junk box microphones that I built or, you know, still have from a teenage, like a little handheld Walkman that recorded with that, a crappy mic on it. And I have that sort of jerry-rigged in a way that I could use it as a microphone. And it's got a built-in little compressor and it's, it sounds like explosive and weird and crazy. Like I'll use that once in a while just for vocals, like sum it up with some vocal mic and it sounds great. And as a drum room mic and, you know, that kind of stuff. And like the boom box that I saw at your place was like the same boom box that my friend and I used to used to record into when we were practicing in his basement and it sounded really awesome. You know, for some reason it would have like a, a stereo mic in it and for like a boom box, who cares, you know, if you're just recording whatever, it was kind of extravagant for them to put a stereo mic in there, but it also had a little compressor in it and it sort of was exactly the trick for recording our practices and it sounded great and the drums sounded great in it. And so like whenever I see stuff like that, I always throw that on there on something, you know, like I'll just add that in addition to whatever the normal safe well, mics let's are. Let's get specific too for somebody who's thinking that sounds like a great idea, but the, how exactly do you add that? Like how do you get the sound out of a boom box or a handheld tape recorder? Oh yeah, like, you know, usually they all have like some sort of headphone jack and you just put a, make an adapter and go into a direct box and from the headphone jack and, and go all the way to a mic preamp and, and then just sort of like see what it sounds like and see, usually it's obnoxiously noisy and the hiss from the amplifier will be way too much. So like you might have to be tricky about it and gate the, the crazy mic, like the boom box or the, the handheld recorder, like with the signal of the clean mic and, you know, just to keep it sort of from adding a ton of like noise to everything mm-hmm. wholesale. And, and yeah, and you may just to throw this in there, you may even have to, um, you know, put the cassette into record yeah. and pa- pause at the same time to make the mic enabled, right? Exactly right. I have like a piece of tape, or I think what I did was like I had a cassette in there that didn't have tape in it, and so it would like move around, like it'd still be thinking it was recording when it wasn't and stick a toothpick in somewhere to make it work out and <laughs> just so that audio comes out the other end. Yeah. Now here's another cool idea that um, listeners can try too. So let's say you do that and you let the tape roll. Don't forget after you did that take um, where the mic went straight into your Pro Tools or your computer, whatever you're recording on, you can rewind the tape and play it back onto another track. Now you might have kind of a weird pseudo, not quite synced up stereo effect of that recording you know certainly you can, you can get creative like that and have a lot of fun with it yeah yeah definitely work with whatever you have <laughs> like when we were first starting off and i had like a radio shack pzm microphone that was kind of like the catch-all everything microphone and then i had like these crappy little headphones which i hooked up backwards into like a you know like one of those radio shack dj mixers where it had a quarter inch mic input and i'd plug the headphones into that quarter inch mic input and i'd shove the headphone inside acoustic guitar like the inside the port of that then you'd get sound and that would be it <laughs> it was just uh you can do that I, I had a friend who had a 412 and one of his speakers was ripped up and so um but it was still going you could see it still going so he didn't care if i did any more damage to it so i just stuck another little earbud headphone into that speaker just to see what would happen like the torn cone of it and it had like a like the most flabby sort of direct sound amplifier weird 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 like synthetic sound didn't work for everything but it could work for a little bit you know yeah well i think that um People who are getting into recording, maybe they're starting out now, it's so common to think that the beginning, middle, and end of your toolbox 
is the laptop, the computer, the DAW, and then whatever plugin is available. And, you know, Greg, you've come from a world of learning how to create the craziest stuff before they even invented plugins. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's I was lucky in that sense because I was able to sort of it helps you sort of improvise a little better if you have to do it in the real world and you're looking at real objects and how they sound and you can sort of whack things and see what they sound like. It, I don't know if that, that helps create an eye for something because sometimes if I'm doing like an in-the-box mix, I sort of feel like I'm trapped in front of this computer screen you know, because it, it might be a mix where I'm mixing a band who's in Australia. I want to keep everything recallable. So if they want to tweak a difference, like it's it's easy to do just to open the session and make a tweak and send them the result. And being stuck in that box, it sort of prevents you from being able to try something interesting and new. Or if you do, you have to record it and it adds like four four times as much time to the, the process than it would have been if they were just in the room listening to it with you. Well, so give us some examples of, let's say you're already there, you're already in the box, you're at your laptop. How do we start getting back out of the laptop to finish this song, this record, this this mix? Well, um, depending on what it is, like sometimes like I'll just pump things out into a real live room with a, like a crappy amplifier or a PA speaker. <clears throat> and that might be a, anything from vocals to a guitar to some drums i don't i've never had much luck pumping out drums into a live room and to try to make it sound like a like a drum kit in a room but uh why do you think that is is that just because it doesn't have as much power as real drums in a room do yeah and it's also coming from like a single point source like a, a speaker or like you know maybe two speakers if you do a stereo thing it's not exactly like it's not the same as hearing like uh cymbals being hit in a room and having multiple exits you know from different parts of the drum kit and that must be it and you know the fidelity of a speaker they can be really good but it's still not like full range it has idiosyncrasies and you know so what does it work well for if you're going to re if you're going to take some of your sounds and send them into a speaker and record it from across the room somewhere what kind of stuff works great for that uh generally speaking anything that was in a speaker to begin with like so guitar keyboard amps and bass amps and that sort of stuff like you can sort of reproject into a room and it won't be exactly identical as the way it was in recorded but it'll be like an approximate version and also like i do like the pa amp effect on a vocal sometimes especially if it's a loud rock band like reproducing that sort of club pa effect is kind of cool not necessarily breaking it up with like a guitar amplifier vocal effect but just like a pa so when a voice really booms out there you hear the reverb of the room I can add like a barely perceptible third dimension to certain things and that plugins don't seem to be able to do seems like a lot of plugins are too even keeled as far as like what they provide as far as like the reflections everything has like a sheen to it that's like perfectly distributed and even like the ones that are supposed to be idiosyncratic like the tube and spring reverb emulators like they're kind of too under control and you know real ones aren't even perfect yeah they're not like even on each side and they have like you know ringing that annoying ringing going on at certain frequencies yeah it's it's like the human condition right i mean as people we're not perfect i mean if they created a plug-in of your best friend it would probably really (laughs) freak you out (laughs) yeah exactly it's like the first day would be really cool but like by the third day it'd be really (laughs) creepy it's like oh yeah that's exactly the beer i like uh but uh when you first meet your plug-in best friend at the bar (laughs) they'd be fantastic yeah exactly you think your all your problems were solved and then by the end of the week you'd just be wanting to kill him or her 
Let's talk concept a little bit because there's so many possibilities for, you know, specifics of what you could do and tricks. Yeah. But how about conceptually? When do you know that it's a good idea to start taking something and make it different or unusual or take something and feed it back out of the box and remic it up? When do you when do you know that's a good idea as opposed to that's just your new automatic like, you know, following the traditional mic technique you always use? Uh, a lot of times you can tell the the van urging or wanting to have something different happen or something new, something special happen. And it's also kind of like a weird psychological thing too. If like, depending on the situation, the band might've been sitting with the song for two years and they're really bored with it. And so you're in a position of like, okay, well, do we really need a special effect or some special thing to happen here? Or are they just sick and tired of hearing their own voice on this song? And um, but generally speaking, it's worth trying anything to just see if it's any better. And like half the time it is better and people are excited by it. And generally, I, I just, I don't try anything just, just cause, but like if there's a, a song rolling along and, and it reaches sort of a dead zone, it's just a matter of identifying why it feels sort of dead at that moment or, you know, why the, like the balls left the situation or why the, you know, why I'm not interested in this part anymore. <laughs> and then, and then just sort of see if something can happen to keep it going. And if, if he tries something and it makes it even, it makes it a little better, great. If not, you know, maybe it's supposed to be a little dead there or something. <laughs> yeah. Do you find sometimes that, um, you know, you hit a point in a song and you're doubting the arrangement, but then by the time you've done something unusual to it all of a sudden you realize the arrangement was just fine and it just needed that sonic change most of the time like i'm sort of just trying to make the best out of every little bit and a lot of times that's just not doing anything at all just otherwise other other than making the balance good the uh the arrangement type stuff that rarely comes up with me like i have to have like a session where there's like a good amount of time and the people that i know very well that they're they're willing to let me you know suggest things that are sort of big changes as far as that goes and again sometimes i'll just do it play it to them and see if they like it and sometimes i do sometimes i don't and but there are times where yeah like if there's a big space there like and they are craving something to have happen that's like a prime time to sort of try doing some weird ambient sort of even like a melody type thing or have someone play like something on a cheesy keyboard or some instrument that they didn't expect to play, you know, that we have just laying around and, and just to try to put it in the background to have something else sort of moving, even if you're not perceiving it too much. Yeah. Well, so now you're doing a lot of sessions on analog tape and then you're also doing sessions in the computer, right? Sort of it's a, how would you describe it? Even split? more of one or the other? I'd say it's more like in the computer nowadays. Since tape is getting pricier and pricier, I'm doing less multi-track recording on tape. I'll mix down to two-track all the time. I just That's just kind of like how I like the format of the final mix to be on. But uh, yeah, I'll do less and less multi-track recording on like, you know, the two-inch 24-track. But uh, it does happen. Like, I and mean, then sometimes it's with those live performing sort of jazz people or, or like uh, just people that like are more into playing like a live band and, you know, interacting with each other and making real music. Like They in, tend to like the tape. Yeah, if they can afford it, they'll do it that way. Otherwise, it'll just be through the tape on the way to the computer if it's, if it's a band that is a rock band or a loud band and they want to be able to edit stuff later and they're not going to, they don't care about the tape. And it's nothing's going to end up on tape except for the final mix. So I'll be doing that on the way to the Pro Tools, just like I used to make fun of. <laughs> yeah, right, right. 
I remember when we were at Electrical Audio years ago when I first met you, um, Pro Tools didn't even exist there. It was sort of reluctantly added to the studio later on. Well, I mean, like Steve has his problems with Pro Tools and, you know, whatever. That's one thing. But like the reason why we didn't really have Pro Tools in is because you couldn't really get a good HD rig for less than ten or $15,000 at the time. And like, you know, most of the money was made at the studio recording analog sessions and uh, on the few occasions probably five days a month there'd be a Pro Tools need you know we had like a friend that recorded a lot at the studio and he would just leave his Pro Tools rig there for us so it'd be hard to justify just dropping like 15, 20 grand on a new rig when it wasn't getting going to get used very much and then once I you know like once I started getting more work on Pro Tools once other freelance engineers were coming in more often then it was just you couldn't not have a rig here so that's when we bought our like one rig for the two studios and now we have two rigs for the two studios and basically we just needed one because steve was working in the other studio all the time doing analog sessions and but whatever (laughs) well so i was just going to say i think a good takeaway for listeners though with that is just the reminder you know you pointed out that your decision on whether or not to get gear was based on a very real scenario, which is, you know, did you really need it? You know, where was it going to come from? And I think people are faced with that kind of question all the time. They're looking at like, you know, should I buy all these plugins? Should I get new pre's, new mics and things like that? And really just arriving at that decision based on what you really need to accomplish what you're going to do or whether or not that money is going to come through a client or something that you're going to, you know, somewhere where, you know, a paying reason why you need that gear. Yeah, like we always said, basically the next time there was a larger project, a lot of times Steve will go out on tour or do some something out abroad for two or three weeks. And those would be the only moments where like you would need two rigs in the building to keep sessions going where you had like a freelance guy or two freelance guys or, you know, one of us and a freelance guy. And I would bring in my rig. Like I brought in my Pro Tools rig from home, I don't know, like three dozen times ever since I got it. <laughs> I was kind of like the de facto bring the extra one in. And, um, and that, you know, that was just sort of like a when that was needed. But yeah, I know what you mean. Like a lot of times the cart before the horse scenario happens where someone's trying to start like a studio set up in their house or the practice space and they're dropping like $3,000 on a single channel tube mic preamp or compressor and then it's going into their, there's like a weird priority of what's important as far as like what you need. And, you know, obviously it's tailored to what you need and what you're doing. If you're a guy recording yourself or someone recording yourself, uh, you don't need 20 microphones Right, you might only need one great mic chain. Yeah, exactly. And I'm an ideal person for prioritizing like <laughs> like what people need in their studio. I feel like, you know, I see the giant excess of like the electrical scenario with all the everything at your fingertips and then like everything that I've had to build at my house and sort of like, okay, I know I don't need like a George Massenberg EQ. Like I, that's a great EQ, it's wonderful, but like I don't need to spend three grand or four grand on that EQ for my my place. It's not going to save. I'm not going to use it on every mix. I'm not going to make it every, it's not going to change my world. <laughs> it's like, you know. Well, let, let's talk about that for a sec. Let's talk about um, what you think is a basic studio setup. Let's say somebody just wants to record bands, a band performing together and make a record start to finish. Yeah. What would you say they might want? Uh, I would say if they, I'm assuming if they, they wanted to do like a DAW sort of setup, then say Pro Tools, for instance, uh, Pro Tools native, simple 16 input 
uh, rig or whatever DAW you like, really, you know, whatever your your DAW is. And then, you know, just like a, a decent complement of microphones that are, you know, don't focus on getting like the, the coolest ribbon microphone because those things will break really easily and they're expensive to re-ribbon and you can't use them on everything. So skip the mics that you can't use on everything, like get pretty rugged condenser mics and and like known dynamic mics like that you know you'll you'll be able to use that kick drum mic on bass guitar and horns as well, not just not a kick drum. Can you give us a few examples just for people who don't have a list in their head already? Yeah, like uh, you know, for like drums, uh what I've sort of found is like a D one twelve, like the AKG D one twelve is just like a super handy mic. It may not be like everybody's favorite mic for kick drum, but like it'll definitely work for kick drum. And it'll also work for bass guitar and work for a bunch of other instruments as well. And yeah, yeah, I love the D112. Yeah, and like, you know, people get snob- snobbish about it, but it's not like, you know, whatever limitations anyone else is pointing to on it, it can be easily dealt with. And So for anybody who's listening, that's the AKG D112. Yes, and then like for my money on the snare drum, I've had like the most luck with the Bayer M201 or Bayer Dynamic M201. Is that the ribbon? No, that's a uh, that's just a dynamic mic. That's sort of like the it's like the Bayer dynamic sort of complement to what a Shure SM57 would be. It's like a upper mid range focused cigar shaped microphone that you use for snare <laughs> and 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 like guitar amps if you want to. But uh, like that will give you like sort of a good basic sort of like snare drum sound that you could EQ up or use if you wanted to make it brighter, thumpier. You could definitely do that. It's not just it's not like a 57 where you're just sort of dealing with this pinchy upper mid range snizz noise and yeah, that's all you got. <laughs> um, How does it do for rejecting the hi hat? Because I know that's an issue sometimes for people is getting a lot of hi-hat in that snare mic um that it's it's probably no better than like a 57 um really the only thing that's ever worked for me for a hi-hat is uh raising the hi-hat <laughs> or yeah. moving, moving or it away from it quietly yeah exactly like moving like getting quieter symbols or moving moving it up in a way a little bit from the snare now, what about the trick what about the keys in the hi-hat trick that works sometimes so you can Open up the hi-hat. It obviously depends on how they're playing the hi-hat, but if they're doing the sort of like with the top cymbal sort of loose on top of the bottom cymbal, wailing on that with a stick kind of playing, then you can throw a set of keys inside the the two cymbals and sort of like dampens as well as sort of like smatters the sound in a little in a little bit easier to hear way. <laughs> like it, it's not as sharp and loud and as annoying as a as that can be. And uh, a lot of times, unfortunately, drummers will just wail on the hi-hat, like quarter notes and or eighth notes, and, and then just lightly tap the snare drum. So that always makes everything harder. That is challenging. <laughs> so let's let's talk about drums since we're there. Uh, what about when you have um, ringing snare that you would like to tighten up? What's What are some of your favorite ways to just tighten up the sound of the snare? If the snare drum's tuned, like the tuning's done and generally liked, uh, and it still has a ring, and I need to get rid of it, there's a couple of ways. Like I'll, I'll use moon gel sometimes to deaden it, and if that's too weird, I might put a, a cut head, which is in a ring. Like you know, if you take an old head, that's the same shape and size, um, and cut like a one-inch band on the outer perimeter of that head, and then lay it over the snare head. It'll act as a little dampener. Yeah, and, otherwise known as an O-ring, right? Same same idea. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I've never heard that, but I, it sounds about right. <laughs> um, you don't want to choke it off or deaden it too much, and the ring is just annoying. Then I just start detuning the resonant head a tiny bit, just to make it 
flabbier and it'll, you know, cut the pitch of that ring. And yeah. And the resonant head, of course, is the bottom one, the one that's usually clear. Correct. Yeah. Right. And that works sometimes. And otherwise, if I'll just swap out the snare, if nothing else fails. Yeah, nothing else it's always worth try that. Just if you got six snares, listen to them real quickly. You'll be surprised at which one sounds best to you in the control room, you know? Yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's the wallet trick. Sometimes you can just drop a wallet on a snare, and that sounds great. It, that'll yeah. completely That's great. It. That's like a moon gel, like, fat uncle. <laughs> yeah, the moon gel fat uncle. I love it. Yeah. Well, so, hey, we need to um, about getting ready to get into the jam session okay. part of the interview here. But I'd like to talk to you about your mic pre and your design, the tech side of what you do. Can you tell us about the, uh, the MX pre L1C mic preamp that you designed? Yeah. How'd that come about? Um, basically, it came about because I bought a uh, that Sony MXP3000 console, which is a really awesome board that the people of MCI made uh, when Sony bought MCI um, in 86 or 84, I forget. But like that was the first console they built after Sony bought them out. And they, uh, they got rid of a lot of the uh, Achilles heels of the older MCI consoles, like the JH500 and 600 and 400, which were like all these crappy tin-plated Molex connectors and a lot of interconnecting sort of like routing switches and all sorts of routing that would cause, over time, like the switches would go bad and the connectors would go bad and you'd end up with this in- intermittent monster board that would just cause problems. And Yeah, that's, that's what I learned from my uh, favorite tape technician down here, Steve Sadler. He said, if it's an intermittent problem, it's always a connection. Yeah. And like I always say to everybody about tech stuff, like 95% of the problems anywhere all the time are just connection problems. <laughs> like whenever there's a noise anywhere or scratchy noise, like it's probably like something that some connection needs to be cleaned or exercised and you'd be surprised. But anyway, so I got that console and the novelty of it other than it being like a sort of a great mainframe for an analog console, each channel strip has a EQ module and a mic preamp module that are that's replaceable and removable. And uh, Sony sold like five different EQ types to fit into your channel and like four different uh, mic preamp styles to fit into your channel. And then they left it open for third-party people to build their own equipment for it. So uh, API designed a preamp and an EQ that fit in the console. And John Hardy, who's a mic preamp designer up in this area in Chicago, he made a mic preamp for it and Avalon. So I bought this console with the idea that like it's going to be a solid console to begin with. And then if I want to hot rod it with my own designs, I can do it simply. I won't have to, I won't have to do any sort of heavy-duty modification. I can just make this little preamp module and just stick it in there and and that was like the big idea and uh the console itself had these transformerless sort of like clean uncharming sort of mic preamps in there that were very just bland yeah (laughs) man i've been dying to get the uncharmer for my studio exactly i hear that's an amazing piece of gear it's a great switch to turn on once in a while um but yeah so like these preamps were kind of boring sounding and they're i'm sure they're fine it's just like there's nothing to them but I, i love the sound of like I love the sound and I love the way transformer input mic preamps sound and work with microphones. In my experience, you don't have a problem with any mic plugging into a you know transformer input preamp. Right, right. Uh, so I decided I'd like you know John Hardy had the uh, Jensen transformer based 990 op amp, 
preamp built for that already. I bought two of his preamps for my board and they're awesome. I used them all the time. I still use them all the time, obviously. Um, so I decided to try this Lundahl transformer that, uh, Lundahl is a Swedish transformer company. They make all sorts of hi-fi transformers and, mm -hmm. and, uh, they make a mic preamp transformer. And I decided to just, you know, try that and, try a bunch of different op amps to see if, you know, what the best op amp match for it was. And there's a good year or two, year and a half or two years of testing out all these different designs and different things until I sort of settled on a, you know, design that I liked. And then, and I just ordered like 50 boards at first to make a bunch of channels for my board. And then the idea was to sell enough of these things to pay off the whole project. And I did that a while ago because, you know, there aren't too many people that have these, this console, but the owners of these console are pretty like rabid fans of it. And they love, talking about it and trading you know eqs and preamps and all that sort of stuff so i, I managed well, to sell cool. yeah i managed to sell enough of the preamps to pay for the whole project and pay for me to have 16 of them in my board and <laughs> so that's, that's cool now is this something that you packaged with its own power supply so that people could you know purchase them from you and put them in their studio no that's actually that's like a further project that like i've talked about doing that but since i brought the uh, mic preamp design over to electrical audio to make a two two channel you know unit for the studio at electrical studio b which doesn't have a lot of transformer based mic preamps uh i sort of packaged it into like a stereo preamp for electrical just building it for them and then that would be just like you know if anyone wanted to uh, to have this preamp like as a, a separate item and didn't want to obviously didn't have a sony desk to put it in like that would be the venue to get it and that sort of evolved into the, the electrical audio preamp that we sell um, that's cool that's cool and how can people find that if they're interested in uh, getting the electrical audio preamp from you well if they want to um, they can come to our website it's just www.electricalaudio.com and then there's a link on the top of I think it's called gear we sell or for sale or something like that. And it has our okay. preamp and mid-side decoder for sale. There's two things that we make at the studio. Hey, everybody, it's Lid Shaw. And I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Recording Studio Rockstars. I really appreciate you and I really appreciate your time. And as a way of saying thank you, I've created a special mix tutorial just for you, Rockstars, totally free, called the Mix Master Bundle. With it, you get over two hours of detailed videos watching over my shoulder as I mix a song in my studio. Plus, I give you the free ebook that explains how I recorded the tracks, and you get downloadable multi tracks so that you can practice your mixes, including the Pro Tools session file, using nothing but stock plugins in Pro Tools, all of which you would find in any other DAW, whether you're on Logic or Studio One or Reaper. Maybe you're struggling with trying to improve your mix technique, or maybe you just simply don't have access to multi track files or can't record a full drum set in your studio. I wanted to give you a chance to create your own mixes from full drum kit, bass, and guitars recorded in my studio. The song is called American Winter, and it's off my instrumental record, Skadoosh, and it's all available for you totally free right now. All you need to do to get it is text Mix Master Bundle to 33444, and I'll send it directly to your email. Again, that's Mix Master Bundle with no space to 33444, or you can go directly to mixmasterbundle.com, enter your email, and I'll send all the files directly to you. Thanks so much, Rockstars. We'll see you guys in the jam session. Cheers. 
Greg, let's go into the jam session next. This is where I like to ask you a series of questions. You can just kind of give quick answers to, and uh, you know, it'll be interesting stuff. Maybe we'll get into some details and stuff. Mm -hmm. So tell us uh, at the beginning of doing this stuff, at the beginning of recording, what was holding you back from getting started? I don't think anything serious was keeping me from moving like into this sort of idea that I could record. I guess like once like just realized I could walk up to anyone and talk to them about music like you know if I'm at a show or something like I guess my own inhibitions of like meeting people and talking to people when I was a teenager and once I figured out how to do that it it worked out pretty well. I think everybody has everything available they just need time and sort of the courage to walk up to people and talk to them. Um, What about when you were getting into your electrical design mic pre's and stuff like that was there anything that you felt like was sort of holding you back from getting started on that? Um, Yeah just knowledge like uh and again, it was just asking people around me. And part of my the reason for getting into electronics was because I was I couldn't afford nice stuff, and I wanted to have nice stuff. So <laughs> I heard that you could build your own mic preamps and save hundreds and hundreds of dollars in the process. And that's really what drove me to do tech work and tech type stuff and building things. It's was the desire to make my own things for my own studio and like and not have to pay out the mouth for it, you know? So tell us what was some of the best advice you ever received about recording? I think uh, some really good advice, and I'm not even sure who told it to me. It might have even been a freelance engineer, like, earlier on. I noticed, like, he was with a sort of a troublesome band, and I was assisting him at Electrical, I think. I don't remember exactly who it was, but, like, I remember just him keeping things cool during the session as people were getting more and more sort of upset or dramatic about not performing well or things not going the way they want to wanted it to go and like and just the attitude of keeping things cool and like fluid and moving along and not focusing on things that were not working that was like the best bit of sort of experience and advice through experience just keeping the thing moving and not like focusing on the negative stuff and that kind of like that stuck with me, just keeping the the band insulated from any sort of possible studio related problems is really important. I, you don't want the band to focus on on like whether or not the air conditioning is working right or <laughs> or like you know big time. I have to check myself all the time. I realize that when I'm doing my thing, everything's going just fine, but I'll make a lot of expressions that look like there's a problem to other people. Oh yeah, and I have <laughs> to sort of really like tone that down or tell them before I'm like. Let, by the way, if you hear me saying all this stuff, it's got nothing to do with how this is going. It's just the way I talk. <laughs> right. <laughs> cool, man. Well, so uh, now how about like a, a recording tip? I, we kind of went through a bunch of these already, but you got another recording tip hack or secret sauce you want to share with our listeners? Maybe something good for people who are starting out too. I'm not I'm not sure I do. Like I, all the little, seem, it seems like everything's been done. There's nothing like too secret about it. Like Whenever I thought I had like an uh, edge on the world, and you know, I thought I was clever for coming up with something, I'll I'll read about someone else doing the same thing, like you know, a few years later, and it's like, oh, there's nothing not out there. Like you know, I remember one thing, like for making like a weird telephone effect or like a filtery sort of effect. Whenever you know someone wanted their vocals to go through that sort of sound, like a telephone or even any instrument, to get really constricted in its sound like instead of trying to eq out everything you know trying to shape it with an eq what, what i would do is like molt the signal to another channel on a console so the two of them are the same then get them at the same level flip the phase on one of the channels so that they completely null out and you don't hear anything and then you can turn on the eq at whatever band you want 
the audio to come through. Like, you know, so turn on the EQ and like turn up the mid and pick a cue and a frequency that would allow that weird filter and like whatever booster cut, you would just hear the difference between the two signals. And that would just be the only signal you heard. And it worked really well. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. Cool. And then like, I should make a pedal that does this or something, you know? <laughs> and then like, I'm sure someone somewhere has made a pedal that does that. Or maybe that's kind of like how a wah pedal works in a way, but yeah, that's cool. But uh, that's an awesome tip. I've never done that. And I, I love that. Yeah, one. It's, it's handy. So let's see here. Let's jump to the next one here. So, uh, how about sharing with us um, some favorite book or, or movie that you're kind of digging about music and recording? Well, there are plenty of movies that are like hilarious to watch. Like, I don't know if I'd uh, think of one that's informative, but like uh, A Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica is a funny movie to watch. The studio, the studio side of it is really funny. Is that the one with Bob Rock and Yeah, it's Bob Rock and then it's like for the black album. And then if you if you have enough time you should follow that up with uh, some kind of monster, which is like them 10 or 15 years later, like when they've totally lost touch with reality and I have like the therapist with them and everything. It's, yeah. it's really hilarious. And there's tons of like sort of geeky things uh, that relate to the times. And like, you know, the first records, like all the drums were cut on the tape and like the second engineer is like piecing together dozens of splices of takes of, you know, for just one drum take and you know, everything you do in Pro Tools, but done on a two inch machine. And it's kind of fun to see that being done as a matter of fact. And then by the time the second movie comes around, you have like this like grid work like computer screen drum manufactured monstrosity and it's kind of funny the books that i like are kind of like more techie the yamaha handbook or sound and reinforcement i think it's called it's a great reference book like you can pretty much learn the basics of everything in a studio in that book it's like a yamaha sound reinforcement handbook that's what it's called okay cool that's um, great and it's just you know Every breaks it all down really layman's like easy easy to understand terms like you know different types of microphones do and you know like how they're used and signal path and you know all that sort of stuff that you really yeah, just need totally. you need like that sort of ABC stuff and then if you want to get more in depth the uh, audio cyclopedia for handbook for sound engineers I think it's called mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's a that's like a more giant bible sized textbook that gets right into the like the detail about every process and that's when you can learn about like everything from like tape heads and how they work and condenser microphone capsules and what they do and all the way down to like what dither is and yeah why i'm supposed to know what that does <laughs> i mean that even gets into lasers on cd players and things like that doesn't it yeah exactly and it also if you like doing diy electronics it gets into electronics theory um it gets as far as you allow yourself to get you know you can keep it simple on read a little bit about stuff to get some basic information, but you can also delve into like how the theory of how, how everything works and the yeah. detailed technology. As I recall, that one is a monstrous, huge, heavy book and about a hundred dollars or something like that. So maybe you can get it for less now um, because of, you know, we have Amazon and Kindle and things like that. Yeah. I don't know if it's on there, but we'll have links to all this stuff in the show notes. So we'll make sure that you can just go to our show notes at recordingstudiorockstars.com. And then it may be slash Greg Norman. Um, uh, and that will just, you know, we'll have the whole blog post there with all these links. Well, so Greg, now how about, um, sharing with us a favorite hardware tool for the studio, something physical that you just like to have around on sessions. At Electrical or any studio that has a Massenberg compressor, I'll use that on pretty much anything I can use it on. 
it's it's my favorite device <laughs> like a, it's a great compressor once you get to know it well enough you can kind of use it for anything whereas you know some compressors are great for some things and others are great for other things this i can find a way to use this for everything from kick drum to vocals to stereo mix and all that sort of stuff so that's like the the thing i I'll, i love to have around uh, if it's around i'll use it all the time now what about what about something yeah, the budget, something that uh, if people don't have access to that amazing piece of gear, something simple that everybody might have. Yeah, the budget version of that I have in my house, and it's not, you know, really a version of it. It's just, it's like a thing that I feel like is similar in utility is the Yuri LA-22. And that has sort of a similar control topology where um, you're able to tell the compressor whether to look for fast-acting information or slow-moving information, um, which helps a lot for compressing signals that have a lot of bass information, for instance. Like, you know, compressor FET and uh, VCA-based compressors will distort easier on things with a lot of bass information and uh you can tailor the la22 like the gml to ignore the the things that cause that kind of nasty fuzzy distortion like the not cool distortion (laughs) right on right on that's cool yeah um when that's that some deep stuff getting into compressors and the differences between them and you know what works well and what um, but so now how about a favorite software tool for the studio? I don't have like a ton of plugins. I tend to use like the basic garbage that comes with Pro Tools. And then like, you know, I'll use outboard gear when I can. And if it's all start and finish with me, like I recorded it and I'm mixing it uh, with the band, uh, I'll use a lot more outboard gear. But like I said before, sometimes I'll do some mixing sessions of bands that are I don't know and they're far away. And uh, I have to keep a lot of stuff recallable. I'll have to use the in-the-box stuff. But uh, most of the time I'll try to use the real-world hardware is there one plugin that you find yourself using on every session? Uh, yeah, well, not necessarily. The one thing I can think of, like software-wise, I started off with a digital performer, and uh, it had a lot more handy tools just given with the basic software. And one of the things that I loved about it was it had this pitch shifting tool within the track window. And it's a it's a type of thing that like if you're familiar with Pro Tools, you know you have like the track and it has like the waveform display or the volume display or the pan display. Digital Performer has the same sort of stuff, but one of them is pitch. And as you're recording or you know when you finish recording it, it sort of renders and recognizes the pitch of whatever you recorded, like Melodyne does. And in real time, you can just sort of nudge something if you need to. Um, you don't have to load any plugin. You don't have to do wait around for anything. It's just part of the track. Yeah, I think the new Studio One version 3 does something like that, too. That's now. great. I mean, I don't do a lot of, like, auto-tuning or anything like that, but, like, it, that's, like, the best presentation of that kind of tool, that kind of pitch tool where, you know, you don't have to make anyone wait to hear what it could do. And so, like, a lot of times where, like, if someone brings their girlfriend in to, or boy, their boyfriend in to sing backups or something and they leave and there's, like, a note that's just super sour and, like, there's nothing you can do about it except for pitch shift it. Like, you can just sort of, like, do it real quick and show them what it sounds like and usually usually it's fine. And, and It won't work, you know, if you do wholesale, like, autocorrect, like, you'll still hear the rancid effects, but uh, it's kind of a neat thing that I hoped everybody would adopt. <laughs> I think that's actually a great tip and that is something that i've found myself doing a lot in the studio for listeners you may be aware of melodyne and autotune and these other ones that can get really deep into manipulating the pitch of something so if you're going to go quote tune a track tune a vocal then yeah you're probably going to want to have all this manipulative control over the part but a lot of times 
you've just got, like you said, Greg, you've just got this one note that didn't quite reach pitch. And you'll be amazed if you just even on Pro Tools, for example, just take out the pitch uh, audio suite plugin and process it up and just kind of like move it up 20 cents, 25 cents, something like that. Sometimes that really does the trick and that's all it needed. So that's a good, good tip. All right. So let's jump into the next bit. Um, tell us something that for you, you know, you're, you've got a home studio, you've been doing this for years and years. Uh, tell us a, a resource for the business side of making music and recording that's been helpful to you. I have an accountant for my own freelance stuff. And I've been saying for like 10 or 15 years that I was going to get like some sort of accounting program, like most people use uh, QuickBooks and or something like it. And I kind of love the idea of organizing all my all my numbers in one place so that I can sort of see it every time I use, every time I make an invoice or something. Uh, but I've just been kind of too lazy to do it. And I always wait till tax season to collate all that stuff. And Yeah, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> it is like a weird pastime of mine where like it's usually I get done at work, it'll be 1130 at night and I'll have like the stacks of paper and like my calendar and all the like information that I need to like plow through and prepare like a like a one sheet sort of like financial description of my life for the last year and present it to my like accountant guy who will turn it into a tax form and hopefully give me some tax return of some sort. And yeah. So like the advice is hiring a professional to do that part so that it's done right. You can go back to focus on making records. Yeah, that's that's the best part. Um, it's not expensive. And the thing is, when you own a house uh, and you're paying a mortgage, uh, you suddenly get put in the category of being able to like itemize expenses because your your mortgage is already a tax write-off and it, you're already given a tax break of, of a certain amount and the mortgage interest turns you into a person who could actually itemize more beyond that thing. So like when I bought my house, that was when itemizing became worth it and get, having an accountant's definitely worth it because it takes a lot of pressure off you and then they, they pick out, they show you things that you didn't know before and like ask you questions that like you had no idea you should have paid attention to like you know did you watch any movies like it turns out being an audio engineer watching a movie is research because you're potentially <laughs> studying the music <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. studying the sound yeah i mean like i'm i mean i have done soundtrack type stuff and i do need to know what that's supposed to be about research is <laughs> legit you can, you can trust me that all those dentists that fly across the country to go to conventions they're writing all that stuff off oh yeah know? yeah <laughs> so uh you should you should give yourself that that uh right anything benefit as well yeah going to shows any any music you buy all that stuff is like if you make money doing anything in music then those are expenses even though you would do them anyway greg i'm gonna throw one of your quotes back at you and then i'm gonna ask you the last question here so the quote i want to throw back at you is um from your tape op interview with Larry Crane, actually, um, you said, when people ask me what bands I've recorded that I like, I never think of the bands I like musically. I think of the good times and the people I get along with, which I think is just a great concept. And I've noticed that myself. I remember when I first started recording, I, you know, and I'd done some records, I looked back on it and I thought, you know, it's funny that there are some sessions where I may... Sometimes I do a record and it's not my favorite music, but man, I really enjoyed working with all those people. And then conversely, sometimes I do records on music that I got excited about, but boy, did I really dislike working with those people. <laughs> yeah, you know? definitely. Um, and so, all right, so let me just jump right into the last question here. So Greg, help us out, help our listeners out. What is the single most important thing a listener can do 
to become a rock star of the recording studio like yourself. If you have like the ability to sort of instill some sort of like patience and like a good attitude towards what you're up to, like, you know, and dealing with people like the rest of the sessions and the work will sort of be much easier to deal with. It'll, it'll almost take care of itself if you know what you're getting into and if you're not trying to like uh, project any sort of expectations on the people you're working with and you're just sort of taking it as it comes and being in a good attitude about it like helping them and you're, you're basically helping them record their dream thing for that period of their life and and if you can sort of be a good steward of that moment like everybody will benefit including you know people enjoy the experience and like think great of the experience and like talking to you later on about that i mean i love bumping into people i recorded 10 or 15 years ago and like reminiscing about an album that we did and like you know it'll be something i totally forgot about and that's great that we didn't get in a fight about something stupid <laughs> but they probably totally remember you because for them it was their two days in the studio or you know their 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 first record yeah exactly and for you you know it's gonna be harder because next week you got to do this you're doing a yeah. <laughs> Two days in the studio with somebody else. Exactly. So basically your advice is make sure you show up in the mornings with a dozen donuts every day. Is that what you're saying? More or less. And just have like, a, you can't just say have a good work ethic, but it definitely has like, do show that you can put out for the band and show them that like you're willing to do it and be reasonable about it. You know, like obviously if it's like four in the morning and they've been trying to do a tambourine overdub for the last six hours while drunk and you've been there for 18 hours and, you know, try to break the news to them in the nicest possible way that like I'm burned out it's probably not a good idea if i keep doing this i'm, I'm gonna screw something up and you're gonna hate me tomorrow for it you know and it ended in a nice way <laughs> you know there's, there there's ways to not like throw throw a beer bottle through a window <laughs> yeah really you really are a nice guy man you really are and i don't know if i would have been that uh capable no I, I don't let it get that far anymore when i was when i was younger i did it because i was excited you know, everything was exciting. So I would just stay up really late and work with everybody, you know, but now it's like, you know, it's gotta be realized that I'm in, I'm going to have to work the next day too. So <laughs> yeah, it gets tough. No, I, I'm right there with you. I did all my vampire sessions when I was a younger man, for sure. <laughs> well, so Greg, thanks so much for being on recording studio rock stars with us and sharing all these great stories and just kind of inspiring people with a lot of cool ideas too. I think people will go away with some new techniques. I know I will. I'm going to try that phase flip filter trick on a vocal soon. Yeah, my pleasure. This is a lot of, this is fun. Um, can you let our listeners know how they can find you if they want to follow you, check out what you're doing? Where should they go? They can just, you know, go to the website. There's a big message board there where a ton of goofy crap is talked about for everything from like political campaigns to cars to airplanes to audio gear at electricalaudio.com. There's a just the forum there. And my name's Greg on the forum. They can contact me through there or just email me. Yeah, I noticed I noticed on your contact form on the site, there were these little icons below. And I wanted to ask you, uh, there was a skydiver. Is that uh -huh. is that something have you have you truly been skydiving? Is that part of your recording regimen? Yeah, we actually went uh, a bunch of us from the studio a long time ago went to uh, went out to the way west suburbs of Chicago where they have a skydiving club and we all went skydiving. It's pretty, <laughs> it pretty ridiculous. Didn't I'm, think glad. I would <laughs> I'm glad you had a good instructor because the world would have lost quite a supply of incredible records if, if that day had not gone well. And oh, then thank you. <laughs> there's a, there was another icon on there under your name and it was a noose. And I, you know, I thought the worst for a moment, but then I went and clicked on it and it said that that, that definition was studio owner. Can you please explain that? 
Yeah, that's pretty much what it is. If you're committing some sort of symbolic ritual suicide by trying to run your own studio because you've strapped in on a lifestyle that like will destroy relationships and, and destroy your health and <laughs> all that sort yeah. of stuff. So. Yeah. Yeah, you know you, what it's about. <laughs> I do, I do. You had made another comment in that interview with Larry, I think, where you were talking about, you know, doing long form records with bands and, you know, that the many things in your own life you had to trade in just to be able to do a, you know, a four month session with, with some band that wanted to be in there all the time, as opposed to bands that you typically work with where they come in and it's like, hey, let's be in the studio for two days, four days, let's knock out a whole record. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a that's kind of a growing pet peeve of mine. Like, you know, there's not much more to be gained out of like the two to four day record. It's not. Um, I know how that plays out, and if the band isn't ready for that session, then it's going to be kind of a bummer for the band. And and I don't like to be part of the the bummer. The, yeah, the bummer. <laughs> you you want to be the guy with the donuts. Yeah, I want to be the guy with the donuts and a nice, easy. Let's uh, you know, let's cut out a little early. It's at four thirty in the morning. Let's go. <laughs> oh man. You would hate me. I I'm like, hey, it's let's cut out a little early. It's four thirty in the afternoon. Right. <laughs> yeah, you wanted to squeeze us out at six o'clock, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> right on, man. So hey, thanks so much, Greg. Really appreciate you being on the show, and um, we'll see you around the studio, man. Yeah, I'd love to come back down there and and do another thing. That'd be great. All right, cool. And I'll uh, hopefully I'll catch up with you in Chicago too. Yeah. All right, man. Cheers. Thanks so much. Sure thing. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RS Rockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.